Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And you, yes, you can call that number this morning because I am live and local, as we like to say, and uh, looking forward to visiting with you on this uh, beautiful Easter Sunday morning. Wish you certainly a happiest of Easter. Uh, for our Jewish friends, we wish you the happiness of the Passover season. And for everybody, it's just spring is such a wonderful time of renewal, so to speak. And uh, I think Easter is sort of wake-up call for everyone in that regard, regardless of what your uh, religious beliefs and practices are. And golly, it is a pretty time of year. going to be a little chilly in San Antonio this week uh, from what I'm seeing, although they've raised the forecast a little bit, thank goodness. Uh, yesterday when I went home, they were showing 38 degrees for a low in Bernie on, on Wednesday morning. That's up to about 42 degrees, which means we're going to be wearing long sleeves and maybe a jacket, but at least we're not going to be covering things up because of frost. But anyway, got some open lines, so give me a call. You know the number, 210-599-5555. Don will be texting me momentarily with a list of the names. Uh, <laughs> a lot of fun having a great engineer back in the station this morning, and certainly makes my life easier. I'm uh, we are closed today for Easter, as are virtually all of the businesses that I speak for. In fact, I can't think of a single one that is open on Easter Sunday morning, but uh, or Easter Sunday, I should say. But well, I tell you, it's just it's just a, a beautiful and just very. Uh, very pristine morning out there, washed clean by the little bit of rain that we did get. And uh, I just, you know, just a, just a really, really good morning. Lots of things going on out there and uh, uh, lots of things to talk about. And let's see, uh, Don, I don't have any names up yet. Do we have anybody calling in? You'll be sending me that in just a moment, I'm sure. But uh, anyway, a couple of things just to tell you about. Um, you know, if you haven't gotten that vegetable garden started, it's too, still too early for some things. It's um, getting just a little bit late for others. Uh, it's still a great time to be planting tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and beans and cucumbers and squash. And uh, the list kind of goes on and on there. And uh, But don't be in a big hurry to plant your okra. Okra likes that soil hot. Probably going to be the first of May before I'm telling you to plant okra out in the garden. And as far as flowers, the one thing I know that everybody's anxious to jump the gun on, and I'm certainly anxious to have them as well, and that is periwinkles. But do not be tempted when you see these things sitting on the shelves of the box stores. It is too early for periwinkles. We get the kind of chilly weather we're supposed to have this week. They are very, very susceptible to a disease called Phytophthora, which kills huge numbers of periwinkles every year so just be patient about another maybe week or 10 days i'll be telling you that you can go ahead and plant your periwinkles and of course that always adds so much color to the to the landscape all right looks like we've got marilyn and aj and james and john waiting so why don't we get started with marilyn good morning marilyn 
Yes, um, I have a big bed of Asian jasmine, uh, a large one, probably four feet by 22 feet. And okay. it's about uh, a foot to a foot and a half tall. I'm trying uh-huh. to get rid of that area. Is the best way to handle that is to use orange oil and vinegar and just keep spraying it until it dies and then pull it out. Uh, I've tried, you know, clipping it out, and it is just so entangled, I just yep. can't. What what yeah what I would recommend and you may need to get somebody to help you with this but it is it is not a big project although you look out there and you've got this big tangled mass of vines that like you say maybe a foot tall but if you were to look go through and look and see how many places is actually rooted in the soil it's very few because unlike english ivy unlike uh, mint unlike a lot of other things Asiatic jasmine does not form roots out along the vine. And while you may have a vine that's 10, 12, 15 feet long and all wound around, I'll bet you if you went through that whole bed, you wouldn't find more than 20 or 30 places where it's actually rooted into the ground. So when I have had, back in the days when I actually did a lot of landscape installation, when I have had to take out an Asian jasmine bed, I start at one edge and I sort of roll it back. I use a tool called a grubbing hoe, which is kind of like a pickaxe with a flat blade on one side, and I will chop where it's actually growing out of the ground push it a little further back, in effect, rolling it up as I go. And, you know, a bed that's 20 by 20, I could probably have that whole bed cleared in 20 or 30 minutes. So it's not like trying to get rid of uh, English ivy or trying to get rid of uh, Bermuda grass or something like that. It does take a little bit of strength, a little bit of determination, but um, a person who can who can swing a grub and hoe could totally eliminate that bed in 30 minutes. So uh, it would be... It would be much more cost-effective to find that nice, strong high school kid that's out of school right now and needs to make $20 and get them to come chop it, roll it up, and um, however you need to dispose of it. But that to try to kill with orange oil, you could do it, but you'd probably spray it 10 times. You'd spend a whole lot more money on orange oil than vinegar than you would uh, just just get somebody <laughs> if if you don't know anybody uh call the call the nearest high school football coach and say hey i've got a i've got a job for a young man that needs a little money and uh, needs a little exercise and that's how i would go about getting rid of it Marilyn. it's not that big a job and normally when you chop those 20 or 30 plants at ground level they do not come back so uh, of all the things to have to dig out and get rid of asia jasmine is probably the easiest of the list Okay, um, and also I have a Mexican olive that's going on. This will be three years. Okay, and it has not grown very much this year. I noticed it. It did have a little, few white blossoms on it, uh-huh. uh, and it does have a few new, uh, new leaves, which I never noticed in the past. Is it just very slow growing, or is there something that I need to do fertilize it or uh, to make it grow? Um, well, the, the first thing you need to do is examine the base of the tree and be sure that root flare is exposed. When you look down at the trunk at the bottom, you should see it physically see it flaring out. It should not look like a fence post sticking up out of the ground. And Mexican olive is one tree that is really, 
really sensitive to being buried too deeply. So step number one is to make certain that that root flare is exposed. Step number two is just some good fertilizer and the same product you put on the grass, whether it's Medina's Growing Green, Micro's Texas Tea, Nature's Creations Premium Landscape Food, any of those fertilizers will make your Mexican olive very happy. If it's three years old, I'm guessing the trunk is maybe, what, an inch, inch and a half in diameter? Uh, it's probably about an inch. Okay. Plan on putting out uh, about three or four pounds of fertilizer. That's probably about uh, eight or ten cups. Just kind of sprinkle it out over the, you know, the whole area around the root zone, you know, as far out as the canopy goes and a little bit beyond that. With organic fertilizers, you don't have to water them in. Maybe we'll get lucky and get some more rain. But uh, expose the root flare. Give it a little fertilizer, and you should see lots of flowers this summer and uh, plenty of new growth. Okay, I'm going to go check that. All right, thank you, Bob. It's always a pleasure. Happy Easter to you. Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. All right, let's move forward to A.J. Good morning, A.J. Good morning, Bobby, and happy Easter to you. And to you and your ponies and your family and the whole crowd. What's going on today? We have a very light situation today, Bobby. That's uh, a good way to eat for Easter Sunday morning. That's good. Uh, I'm, tr- I'm going to try to take some rose cuttings again. I've tried about 100 of them, and I have had no luck. And uh, what I was going to do is set them in perlite in these 3x3 three three containers and see what kind of luck I had. Is that going to do any good? You're going to have to be very careful, A.J., to get the mature wood, the hardier, tougher wood, because right now rose bushes have a lot of real soft, succulent growth on it, and that will not rot, or that will not root. That will rot. Take one O away, and you got what happens. But you need to get to where... You've got that that fairly hard wood, uh, and that means wood that has come out this spring or already hardened off, or it may mean you know taking uh, cuttings from a from a branch that hasn't really started putting on a lot of new growth. So the first and most important thing is to get mature wood. Second thing I would do is soak those cuttings for about ten or fifteen minutes in either a mixture of seaweed and water or garret juice and water. Soak them for about fifteen minutes and then put them in your perlite. And if you do those two things, you should have at least eighty percent of them root for you. I find the biggest <laughs> the biggest situation that most people create is when they use uh, those real soft new cuttings because those are never going to root well for you. Okay, but how many would you stick in that little three-by-three three pot? We're talking three inches by three inches? Yes, sir. Let's go with a little bit bigger pot. Let's go with uh, at least a one-gallon container. Um, I usually use, uh, you know, a nursery tray, which is like 12 by 18 inches, and I may put 50 cuttings, you know, into a container that size. And a gallon-sized container, you could probably put about six cuttings. But that little three-by-three pot is just, it's going to be hard to keep it properly moistened. A little bit bigger pots are going to find it's a lot easier to keep that perlite properly wet. And um, so I'd do that a gallon size container i do i do about six cuttings in a container that size if i were using my uh nursery tray i'd probably put 50 cuttings in there all right but how long do you recommend those cuttings to be 
uh, no more than three or four inches at the most. And here's the reason why. You know me, I can't just tell you yes or no, I have to tell you why. But those cuttings are constantly dehydrating through the leaves and through the actual stems themselves. The more leaf area, the more stem area you have, the more moisture they're losing. And since they have no roots, they're not able to take moist moisture up. That's why we missed them periodically. But you get a cutting that's too big, it's simply going to dehydrate itself to death before it has a chance to get the root started. So keep those cuttings to about no more than three or four inches and take off all except maybe the top two sets of leaves. Any of the leaves that would be buried down into the perlite, Go ahead and just pull them off or clip them off. All righty. Well, I'm going to give that a shot, Bob, and see what's going to happen. I'll bet you you're going to be very successful, and I want to hear about it when you are. Okay. All right. You may not live that long. (laughs) (laughs) I'm planning on living a long time. I've got a little sign somewhere that says, uh, the good Lord put me on this earth to accomplish a certain number of things, and right now I'm so far behind I'll never die. (laughs) So. I'll be bailing to bet you we'll be seeing roots in about six to eight weeks maximum, AJ. Okay, thank you, Bob. You're certainly welcome, sir. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, let's move along and go ahead and talk to uh, go ahead and talk to James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing this morning? It's a beautiful Easter Sunday morning, and uh, didn't have to put the long johns on. That'll be a couple more days. Did get a bad storm last night. Uh, didn't get a lot of rain either, but uh, I'm thinking it's a pretty darn good day. How about you? Oh yeah, we got a shower this morning to add to the three and a half inches we already got. <laughs> rub it in. Go ahead, rub it in. Yeah, I got about thirteen one hundreds overnight, but uh, you know, happy for every drop that falls. Yes, sir. Well, the good news is it stopped raining. Um, I had a question about nasturtiums. Okay, I heard you guys talking about them. Uh, I uh, wanted to plant plant a few, so I uh, put in a, about a 125-foot row, and then I find out that they're uh, magnets for aphids is what... Well, yes and no. Um, you know, nasturtiums are really cool-weather plants. When, when did you plant this 125-foot row? Oh, um, it was on the fence line where I was going to do some flowers, but I thought, well, let's do some nasturtiums. I guess that's a flower. Uh, Absolutely. About two weeks ago. Okay. You should have done it about two months ago. Okay. Um, I'll, uh, I'll hold them up then if they're good. Well, nah, I, you know, I, I put out some ladybugs. I don't ever object to aphids a little bit because they bring in so many beneficials. And they we're, we're going to cool down some this week. And even if you only have a few weeks of flowers, those uh, those folks you uh, you love selling a few cup flowers to are going to love your nasturtiums. So I wouldn't hoe them out if they're up and growing. But no, next year... <laughs> well, in that case, there might be something better to put in there. I hate to say that, but yeah, you need yeah. to... They they don't really like a hard freeze, but down to the upper 20s, that's not a problem for them, and uh, they really thrive in cool weather. We we've, we've got a bunch of them growing in a pot here at the nursery, and uh, they're they're showing a little stress these hot days, but they've still got plenty of flowers and leaves on them. So, I think next year, if you aim at getting them planted around Valentine's Day, you'll have a beautiful crop. Oh, okay. And I got a question about. Uh... I usually give everybody a uh, spraying of uh, seaweed once a week. Yes, sir. And, uh, I've been told that 
that toughens up the leaf and helps it for uh, helps spider mites. Yeah, resist spider mites and cold weather. It does both of those things. Plus, I think they've identified like 96 different beneficial compounds in seaweed. So it does a lot beyond just that. It does a lot to re, you know improve the bricks, which is going to improve uh, you know cold hardiness, resistance to the insects, as well as improving the flavor. So yeah, it's hard to list all the different good things that seaweed does. Well, it uh, uh, seaweeds go, uh, going on them right now. And uh, when they start uh, loading up with uh, with little uh, tomatoes, then I'm going to switch to the six twelve six has to grow plant. But right now, it's once a week with uh, seaweed. I think you're doing a great thing. Only objection I have to seaweed is it does tend to give things a little bit of a brown stain. I try to avoid spraying it on white flowers because it sure does make them less attractive. But uh, you're just you're never going to go wrong with seaweed. You're you're accomplishing a lot of different things, uh, not just on your tomatoes, but I'd be hitting peppers and eggplant and squash and everything that grows out there. Don't think it does as much on the coal crops because they've got that waxy leaf that things you sort of beat up on but uh everything growing in your spring garden will benefit from liquid seaweed yeah well once once it dries out today i'm going to give everybody a shot well you get out there and uh you enjoy and it's always a pleasure talking to you thanks bob all right back to gardening we're going to talk to john and mike and paul and mark and john's up first good morning john hey bob good morning how are you morning. happy easter and happy Easter to you, sir. Beautiful morning out there. It is. It's gorgeous. Yes, sir. Hey, a couple of questions. So I was visiting with a friend this week um, who wants to put in some um, star jasmine or confederate jasmine. Is there, What's the difference between those two? Anything? The name? <laughs> it's because not everybody not everybody can say rinkum or let's see tracheospermum uh, jasminoides. That if everybody <laughs> called it by its botanical name, there wouldn't be any more confusion. But uh, star jasmine and Confederate jasmine are two names for the same plant. But there's one okay. thing to keep in mind: there is sort of a yellowish form, and then there is the form that is that pure white. And um, so, uh, of course, the nice thing this time of year is that most of your nurseries and plants are going to be in full bloom. So I, you know, I prefer the white. It's just so clean and beautiful and fragrant. Uh, if you don't mind kind of a creamy color to it, uh, they're both virtually the same as far as their growth, as far as their hardiness. But uh, about, just be aware. winter hardiness? What about the winter they're, hardiness? Are they yeah, like evergreens what, or? Yeah, they're both evergreen. They're both hardy. You know, if we have one of those winters when it suddenly goes from 80 degrees to 20 degrees, everything's going to have some damage. But in a typical winter, uh, the star jasmine will go down to upper teens, probably 16, 18 degrees before it shows any problem at all. So uh, as long as you keep it watered and fertilized, uh, winters in South Texas uh, are are rarely ever going to be a problem. All right. Um, switching gears to my garden now. Um, ginger. Is there a trick to, to getting fresh ginger to grow in your garden, or you just put the rhizome in the ground and? It's got to be warm. And the culinary ginger, which is a true ginger, uh, is not 
cold hardy here so it's something we're going to put out after the weather warms up and like most rhizomes you're going to plant it no more than half an inch below the surface of the ground you're going to keep it warm you're going to keep it watered you're going to keep it fertilized you're periodically going to dig up a portion of it and uh I love good ginger. There's so many good things to do with it. And since I like sushi, those two things go real well together. But just remember, you will need to hold back a portion of it that you can dig up. And you can store it dry if you like. I prefer to put it in a pot and then just, uh, you know, grow it through the winter months. And then I've got a little bit bigger plant to put back in the garden in the spring. Full sun, I guess. Yes, sir. It'll grow in partial shade, but it'll be most flavorful in full sun. Okay. Um, tatumi squash. I, I bought a packet when I was at your store not long ago, and I've got yellow and zucchini. I'm going to let that make, but w- tell me, uh, cooking-wise, do you cook it similar to a zucchini or a yellow squash? or what? what you, 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 grow it, you, you grow it, you pick it, you cook it just exactly like you would. It's. Uh, have you ever grown the round zucchini, the baby ball, or some of those varieties? You can basically nope. treat tatumi like you would grow the little round zucchinis, which means you know, harvest them before they get real hard and tough. Um, the a couple of things about growing them, I mean, you need to give them a little bit more room. They're going to be much more vining than uh, your other squashes are. They're going to resemble more some of your winter squash as far as putting out a fairly long vine. But, of course, the great advantage is that they have a very thin vine, which the squash vine borer cannot invade and cannot cause you problems there. But uh, uh, other than that, everything about their culture is going to be exactly the same as uh, zucchini or crugneck or any of the more familiar squashes. Well, great. I'm looking forward to growing it and tasting it for the first time. So thanks for the suggestion. All you right, know, if if is- you... Yeah. Uh, one thing I was just going to say, if if you did a blindfolded taste test, uh, you'd have to have a pretty sensitive ta- palate to tell one from the other. So I think you're going to find it to be very, very good squash for you. Well, great. So um, with all the extra time, um, I've fired up my compost piles again, which I've, I've really <laughs> enjoyed making compost. Yes, sir. Uh, and one thing I decided to do yesterday was to uh, brew some compost tea. Mm-hmm. And I have a really old probably 12 to 18 month old pile of compost is is that still going to be viable for making compost tea if it's absolutely absolutely because here's here's the thing about microbes soil microbes in that old compost if you took a nice big pot full of it you probably have and the numbers keep going up you've probably got 20,000 different kinds of bacteria you've probably got 12 to 14,000 different kinds of fungi some of them the longer body but most of them just little one cell the beneficial fungi and when compost is totally mature or when compost dries out completely at least half of those microbes. Uh, so now we were down to 10,000 different kinds of bacteria and 6,000 different kinds of fungi. They actually have a dormant or resting stage where they can stay for years. And when you activate them, so to speak, by giving them moisture, by putting them in a nutrient soup, which is what you're basically doing when you make compost tea, even if it's the most dried-up old compost you've ever seen, even if it looks more like dirt, then uh, you're still going to get not you're going to get half as many uh, different microbes as you would have in a little bit fresher compost, but half as many still amounts to over ten thousand different kinds of things. So it makes pretty darn good compost teas. Does that make sense? It makes perfectly good sense. Now, one more question about that is, 
I got to looking yesterday, and I, I normally have Medina molasses on hand, and I didn't have any. So I used brown sugar. Is that going to work to sure. some extent? Or Absolutely. Good. You're wasting a product that tastes awfully good on French toast, but if you want to put a little of it in your compost tea, that's... a tablespoon is all. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing that the thing that we really have to remember in making compost tea, the worst thing that happens to compost tea, and it happens very frequently, especially when you're new to the game, is that we create so much metabolic activity that your tea uses up all the oxygen in the water, and then it goes anaerobic, and all your good guys die, and the bad guys move in. So be, especially in hot weather, be sparing with the real strong stimulants, and sugar is the real strong stimulant. You can overdo it a little bit with, uh, say, liquid uh, seaweed. You could overdo it a little bit with uh, liquid fish. Uh, same thing with bran meal, you know, wheat or corn or whatever. But you have to be real careful with your with your sugar source, whether it's brown sugar, whether it's molasses, whether it's cane sugar, whether it's old Coke syrup. Uh, you you want to be, uh, and, and again, in cool weather, you can use more of it because uh, at colder temperatures, your microbes are going to reproduce more slowly. But when in doubt, err on the side of caution as far as your stimulant because you don't want to create such a reproductive frenzy in there that uh, you deplete the oxygen supply in the water. And of course... The more air you have moving through, I mean, if I if I wanted to really have hot compost tea, so to speak, I put three or four air stones instead of one in my bucket just to keep you know a huge amount of oxygen in the uh, in the liquid. Sure, I, I have three air stones, and one of them is about ah, yeah. oh, it's about the size of a of a lid. It's an old, it's a round stone, but um, <laughs> so I could have used liquid seaweed. That works as well. Use them all. I mean, okay. different different substrates, so to speak, support the growth of different microbes. And it's kind of like compost. The more different kinds of things that go into making your compost pile, the greater the diversity of microbial life. That's why I'm not a fan of cottonburg compost, not such a fan of mushroom compost, or even um, manure compost, although that's better. Because cottonburg compost, you're basically getting the microbes that break down cottonburgs. When you, and I look at somewhere like New Earth, and you don't want to know all the things that go into their compost, because that company formed is a way for a slaughterhouse to get rid of all of its uh, byproducts, shall we say. And I don't know how much of that they do these days, but they're getting vegetable waste from HEB. They're getting old ice cream from Bluebell. They're getting like 20 different things that they are putting into their compost. And so this gives you the greatest diversity of microbial life in the compost. And by the same token, the more microbial diversity you have in your compost, the more diversity you're going to have in your compost tea, the more different stimulants you put in there. Um, and I don't mean to go on and on about this, but it's so interesting. No, that's uh, good. Keep going. Yeah, I, I, I'm... I love doing it, so I, I try to add as much as I can, and I hear exactly what you're saying. Not, nothing well, in my refrigerator that goes bad goes in the trash. <laughs> it becomes compost. Well, and, and there is a lady, her name is Dr. Lane Ingham, former professor of microbiology at the University of Oregon, and she has a company she calls that is called the Soil Food Web. Google it sometime and look yeah, at it. I'm very familiar with her. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, but familiar. she she actually 
in working on a commercial basis, she will work with a an agricultural producer to get with to deal with a specific problem. And if you tell her I'm fighting Rosoctonia on my grass farm, she will come up with a compost tea that addresses knocking out Rhizoctonia. If you say I've got Circospora on my peanuts, she'll come up with a compost tea. So those of us that are doing it at home, we're trying to use a broad-based compost tea, but uh, and and we we do that. The basic things. Um, I mean, we make it here at the nursery during our busy season, and we always had some seaweed. We had some liquid fish. We had some molasses. The company that sold us our two thousand dollar tea maker out of Oregon, they make a proprietary mineral blend and uh, I have no idea what goes into it and they certainly don't tell us but we add a couple of scoops of that but you could throw in I mean again it, it it would not be so good for the sprayer but if you want to throw in some or what you could do is soak some green sand in water for instance and then don't put the sand in there but pour off the liquid from that just every possible thing you could think of that would uh, improve the growth of your plants you can add some of that to improve the quality of your compost tea fascinating it is a fascinating subject. We spent three days one time taking a course eh, at a few hundred dollars uh, up in Austin that Elaine was teaching, and <laughs> Bruce Dooley calls her the princess of poop. But uh, it, uh, there, there, there is a tremendous amount to know. And again, some of the some of the things are not real, not real well understood. But she was talking about one of their commercial projects was in Colorado, I think, in Denver. And uh, one of the guys that she had out spraying the compost tea was a Vietnam veteran who had picked up some horrible skin malady while he was uh, fighting in the jungle over there. And every summer, literally, a lot of his flesh just rotted and fell off the bones and went away, you know, in, in the cooler weather. And this guy was out there spraying the compost tea, literally getting himself covered with compost tea. And a few months later, his uh, skin problem had gone away to every return. So there's just nothing bad to say about compost tea so long as you keep it active enough that it never goes anaerobic. Agree. Well, great. Well, listen, thank you very much. Have a blessed Easter Sunday, and thank you for what you do. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Paul and Mark and Wayne and Ralph. Paul is up first. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, Bob. Happy Easter. And to you as well, sir. What's going on today? Uh, Red tip. Fatinia. Um, uh-huh. I've, row of them. I've got a row of them. I've had them for 15 years. I actually inherited them when I bought the house. Um, it's about 20 foot stretch of them. There's about, well, there was about eight. Right. A couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, um, a couple on the end died. And then over the winter, um, everything just died. And okay. now they're coming back, they're coming back with some new growth. Um, there's a bunch of branches that are just, they don't have new growth. The mm-hmm. center, they're very multi-trunked. Um, I've never trimmed them or anything. Uh, there is new growth. I guess my question is two. One is the new, the new growth, some of the leaves, you can take a line and draw it across the leaf and it's just right. dead. Right. And the second is, do I cut out all that dead stuff and then let the center grow back out again and what happened to them 
Well, you know, if they were mine, I would put this wonderful product called Chainsaw on them right at ground level. Um, <laughs> red tip Fotenia, short term, are a beautiful plant. Long term, they were a really crappy plant. And we got, we meaning South Texas, got sold a bill of goods back when uh, Steve, uh, what's his name, was our county agent. And according to him, you know, nothing ever went wrong with these plants. Uh, I think that's the reason he had to leave town. He brought us the Chinese pistachio and the red tip Fotenia, and he had to go get a job in Dallas when they started going bad. So <laughs> that, that may not be the whole reason. But, but here's the deal with red tip Fotenia. They are very susceptible to a disease called entomosporium. I'm sure you've seen some of it where the leaves get yellow and it kind of gets big red splotches in the leaves. And, it is it it is a disease of stress. If you want to go to the time and trouble of uh, of trying to bring these things back, yes, go ahead. Any any limb that is not budding out, go through very carefully with the pruning shears. Wear some eye protection. Uh, be prepared to curse fluently and cut out all of the all of the limbs which have no new growth coming out on them. Be absolutely certain that you expose the root flare just like you would on a tree to where you actually see the spread of the trunk down at the bottom. And then basically you follow what Howard Garrett calls a sick tree treatment. And you go to dirtdoctor.com and look at that. And I have to tell you, Howard, of course, is up in Dallas. And the reason he invented the concept of the sick tree treatment was because of all the problems with red tip Fotenia in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. So uh, that that process was designed because 99% of the people that plant them after about 12 to 15 years start having these problems with them. In a nutshell, it means, first of all, exposing the root flare. You're going to go back and you're going to add green sand. You're probably going to add some lava sand. You're going to add some dry humate. You're going to add some dry molasses. Uh, you're going to probably spray it down with apple cider vinegar. You can bring those plants back, um, but it's going to be, over the years, it's going to get harder and harder to maintain them. And so I, you, you kind of have to look at it and say, do I have enough here to be worth saving, Paul? And uh, decide whether you would be better off to put some work into it or whether you would just want to replant with xylosma or a plant that's going to be a little bit easier to maintain. I would kind of make my decision, at least in part, in looking at the eight or ten plants you have. And if you've got like three in a row that are dead, you're going to have to put something new in there because the ones on the ends of that space are not going to fill all the way in. On the other hand, if virtually all of your plants show at least a little bit of life, if you want to put the time and effort into it, you can bring them back. And uh, you can, once again, make a reasonably nice hedge out of them. You're going to have to really work at keeping them well-fertilized, well-mulched, and well-watered to keep them going. But, but at this point, it's just, it's kind of looking at them and, and uh, I guess you'd say triaging them, saying, are they really worth saving? And you're going to have to make that decision based on looking at them. If you go along the, the row and virtually every one of them has some life in it, then I think you could probably bring them back. If two-thirds of them or if there are big gaps in them where there are absolutely no living plants at all, uh, then you have the choice, do I go ahead and replant the whole hedge, or do I replant in these areas where I have no photinias coming back? And uh, if you do that, I'd sure look at uh, probably Xylosma, X-Y-L-O-S-M-A, 
would be my first choice for a good 10-foot shrub replacement. Other things you could consider would be things like standard Yopon holly, which is going to be a little slower growing. Uh, you can plant mount laurels, going to be a little bit slower growing, but live for, you know, 50 to 100 years. If you have room for things to really spread out, uh, loquat. Uh, would be a good choice provided you can water it. Loquat and xylosum are probably going to be your two fastest growing plants. And if you get the tree, yeah, yeah, it, it really wants to be a big bush, but remember it wants to be 10 feet wide as well as 10 feet high. If, uh, whereas the xylosum can be, you know, trimmed to where it's just maybe three or four feet wide. And finally, I would only go with the clumping variety, but if you don't have an objection to bamboo, there are varieties like Alphonse Carr and Golden Goddess, which do not spread invasively, and they'll give you a nice slender privacy hedge. So anyway, long lecture on uh, on Fotinias, but I hope that helps you. No, absolutely. No, uh, from what you've told me, I, I don't want to deal with it. I've got a, I own a backhoe. I can get rid of them. And then just start, start over. You remind me of because, my favorite yeah. no, no trespassing sign. It says no trespassing. I own firearms and a backhoe. Right. <laughs> and so your backhoe is going to come in real handy with, with those potentias. Yes, sir. Yeah, it just sounds like a, for for the money to keep these things going after 15 years, I might as well just pull them and plant something new and start again. Yeah, and get out and look. I The old-fashioned thing to plant would have been Japanese ligustrum, but it has its own set of problems. So I'd be looking at, at what you like, but I would definitely check out Silosma. I'd check out Loquat. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd love the standard Yopon holly, but it's a lot slower growing. Um, there are other native plants like evergreen sumac. You have quite a number of choices. If you want something that will grow extremely quickly and only take up a small amount of area, is is there a fence here, or was this just a row of, of shrubs? No, it is definitely a privacy kind of okay. issue. Um, but there is but a if fence. you it's a barbed yeah. fence, but okay, yeah. if you if you could extend the height of that to six or eight feet. Uh, you can plant Confederate jasmine. I did that when we uh, uh, built a perimeter fence on, on the front of a part of our property here at Shades of Green. I planted Confederate jasmine that was probably eight inches tall, and within six months, it was uh, high. It was probably eight feet tall. It was two feet above the fence. So if you could create, and I use cattle panels is what I use, the heavy-duty welded wire. That's what I used Hello. as a background. Yeah to uh, put it on and uh, grew Confederate Jasmine up that, and uh, I had an instant privacy screen that way. Awesome. And one quick question. Do you ever um, do you have a phone number that, like, us out here can send pictures to you so you can look at what we got going on? I'm just wondering. We do that here at the nursery. I'll be honest. I only check my email about every day or two or three because uh, – Let's just say I lead a real a real busy life, but uh, um, we um, uh, let's see it's shades of green sa at gmail dot com, and uh, Wendy Wendy and Roberta tend to check that pretty often, and if it's in they're not familiar with, they'll holler at me and say, "Hey, look at this." So, I, you know, again, I don't encourage that because especially now with all the COVID nineteen stuff, we're working twice as hard to make half the money, but we are wide open. We're doing an awful lot of. Uh, you know, curbside services. People still come in the nursery. I mean, we've got permission from the city. We're very strict on social distancing, and uh, probably 80% of our business is still people coming.
coming into the nursery, but the remaining 20% (laughs) takes up a lot of time of a lot of people. So, um, again, you're not going to get a response in five minutes, but uh, we will get back to you whenever we can. Excellent. Well, I'm sure I could have Googled all this, but I'd rather talk to you, Bob. Thank no, you, please, please don't Google because you'll get uh, information for a different part of the country. And uh, I think some of the extension service guys are still in love with red tip Fotenia, but I think they they must have a uh, you know a little money invested in the chemical companies that make the non-effective sprays for entomosporium. But we won't go down that road. This is Easter, so I'm going to try to be nice all day long. Paul, you have a wonderful Easter, and I appreciate the call this morning. You, you too. Thank you, Bob. Take care. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Give up. All right. Back to gardening. And real quickly, let's go to Mark. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hello. Hi. Well, it's going to be off with the hail protection and on with the cold protection today. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the hill country. <clears throat> Gee, yeah. Yeah. We we finally figured out, well, on, on the long rows of stuff, we use the 30% shade cloth for, for right. hail protection. Yes, sir. Like the six-foot-wide stuff. The right. other stuff, we have pieces of hardware cloth. Yeah. But, yeah, so I've already got the covers mostly out there, although it's going to be 40-mile-per-hour wind gust this afternoon, which makes it quite a challenge to put on these 30-foot-long um, covers. I can imagine it does. Yeah. So, anyway, um, um, first thing, though, my, my corn is just sprouting. Mm-hmm. How cold do you think that can get without some problem <laughs> um you know if it's got proper moisture uh, it, it'll go probably to 30 degrees you would like to keep the frost off of it if you can um you know it's, it's not something to do with the last minute but of course liquid seaweed helps but uh at, at this point i'd i'd water it today if you didn't get decent rain looked like you had a lot of rain up fredericksburg way last night but uh if it's yeah, if it's if it's moist, it should take a light frost with only a little bit of cosmetic damage. Okay, okay. Well, that's that's good. Well, uh, it looks like Monday night's going to be it, it. The cold nights is when the wind stops. Right, and that's going to be <clears> Tuesday night. night. Gonna get calm. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, um, the tomatoes we we usually try to keep them above forty. You know, yeah. we, we've had in the past where we it seems like. Below forty can cause you know there's no noticeable damage, but they just don't produce well. So and it takes them a while to come back. And you know, again, liquid seaweed. If you're spraying that uh, every week or two, that's going to make a big difference in how they tolerate the cold. Okay, yeah. And I've got my a string of Christmas lights on one of those already too. Just (laughs) that will help. Ah, uh, but don't don't dial right this second because every line is taken. We're going to visit with Mark up in Fredericksburg for a minute more, and then it will be Wayne and Ralph and a second Mark. So uh, uh, back back to Fredericksburg. Good morning again, Mark. Hi, Bob. Yeah. yeah. Um, strawberries. With, ten years ago, we we had really good production, got lots of strawberries. <clears throat> for several years now, they just don't do so well. So right now, they're most of the plants are kind of yellow. There's the kind of a light yellow. They're not green. Okay. Not, well, but actually, they kind of had a flush of production, and now there's nothing. And I guess that's weather related. But most likely, answer. yeah, I would be. You know, I'd I'd probably go to a liquid fertilizer for a couple of applications. You might 
You might uh, try just giving them a foliar drench with Garrett juice, uh, the uh, apple cider vinegar in there, and a number of the other things can correct a you know a world of problems. Now, do you replant regularly? Do you replant the yeah. little offshoots? Okay, because it is important right. to so to speak renew the plants. But uh, I'd I'd be hitting them with some liquid fertilizer rather than relying on the dry. And I'd probably also give them a shot of Garrett juice. And with warm weather, I think you'll find they should perk back up. So that that Garrett juice pro would be okay. Would be excellent. It's one that has uh, mycorrhizal fungus in it, and uh, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure which strains of mycorrhizae, you know, work with uh, strawberries, but I do know they they do make use of mycorrhizal fungi associations. So yeah, I think Gary Juice Pro would be ideal. Okay, um, my sugar snap peas are looks like they're going to all be small again. Um, now it's interesting that the blooms hang on there for like, geez, ten days or at least 10 days before they even start peas. So uh-huh. I guess the, the small is a pollination thing, or what do you think? No, I, you know, um, I, I think it's at least in part weather. Now, are your plants full size, or the are the plants uh, small, too? This is the, um, the, the, one of the bush ones, one of the short ones. Uh-huh. And, and the, the, I mean, the peas are small because there's only like two peas in a pod instead of four or five or whatever. So that's, yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I don't know. We get that sometimes where most of them are small, and then they'll have a burst where they're all full size. Well, then that would probably be a pollination issue. Experiment with planting different varieties and see which ones do best for you. Um, of course, the nice thing about sugar snaps is uh, you're not really concerned about um, the number of peas yeah. inside. You're basically eating the whole pod, and sometimes the most tender, delicious ones, or at least ones I harvest before those peas, you know, even get as big as a, as a grain of rice. So um, lack of peas inside the pod would be pollination, but if there's ever a crop that I'm not real concerned about, lots of peas, it would be the sugar snaps from, I'm basically, I mean, that's why they call them edible pod peas, is we're getting as much out of the, or more out of the pod than we are out of the little pea growing in it. But you you get half of the volume of peas, though. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Uh, um, um, on the, um, we had the bacterial leaf spot on those, the peppers and a little bit on tomatoes last year. Okay, I had the peppers that I held over through the winter, and I just cut them off at the ground about a week ago, and they're growing back out. But that disease will still be in the plant, right? Um, If it is bacterial, yes. Uh, If it was viral, yes, definitely. So um, go on the web. I don't know exactly where to tell you to go, but there is a new disease out that's hitting both tomatoes and peppers. It's bad enough that they have banned the import of uh, seed from Italy and a few other countries. Uh, so yeah, More bad stuff than just COVID happening in Italy. Uh, you know, bacterial leaf spot is not as... Uh, uh, it's just not a real common disease. I worry that it's becoming really bad for you. You might look and see if you can narrow down 
the type, and uh, I, I'm sorry I don't remember the name of this new one that's out there, but uh, it looks real nasty right now. And, of course, uh, you know, a little Garrett juice, maybe even a little bit of hydrogen peroxide would be a real good thing. I, I think hydrogen peroxide diluted down, you know, to about 1%. I'd sure be trying that on your plants to see if that doesn't uh, help suppress it. My concern was I, I, I didn't want them to go back up with this and, and spread to the to the tomatoes that are close to it. That's kind of why I cut them off. So I, I didn't want to take a chance on them getting it. Well, you're just going to have to watch the yeah. plants. And uh, yeah. if it appears that cutting them down did not suppress it, then I'm probably okay. going to replant. But uh, hit them as they come back out. Hit them maybe weekly with some 1% hydrogen peroxide. Let me know how that works okay. for you. Oh, and I guess as long as they don't have the spores, they're probably not sending it out. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So just watch for that. Okay. okay. Well, it's they're not really spores, but they're the bacterial. Uh, if it is bacterial, then uh, then it is the equivalent of a spore. Spores are produced by fungi, not by so much by bacteria. Okay. Okay. Um, have your um, painted bunting showed up yet? Not yet. This year. Not okay. yet. Should be but, in the future. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, listen. It's good to talk hey, to you. You guys have a happy Easter, and uh, let's move on to Wayne. Good morning, Wayne. Hi, Wayne. How you doing, Good morning. Bob? I'm great, sir. How about yeah, yourself? Hey, no, I'm doing good. Hey, listen, I got a. I've listened to you talk about it before, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to get my chili pekin growing, and uh-huh. uh, I've noticed something's taking some bites out of the leaves. It's a pretty young plant. And I saw a peel bug around it, and yes, sir. Uh, I don't know if there's caterpillars or what. And I was wondering, is that the spinosad soap going to work on there, or what do I use? Um, if it is caterpillars, the spinosad soap will very definitely work. If it's pill bugs, I use a product called Sluggo Plus. Uh, it's an iron phosphate bait with some spinosad in it. And with the pill bugs, uh, the bait has always worked better for me than the spray. So uh, you can start out with the spray if you've got it. But if that doesn't seem to be doing the job, get some Sluggo Plus uh, bait and scatter it around, and that will sure take care of the pill bugs. What you need more than anything is hot weather because chili pekins and chili patines both love the heat. And at that point, they start growing so fast they outgrow the bugs. <laughs> That's good. All right. Uh, uh, I, I uh, guess I'm also uh, I'm moving into my forever home, and I'm trying to get a small garden planted in the middle of all that. Uh-huh. So uh, I've got the tomatoes out, and I'm wondering uh, to protect early blight. I used to get some over my cornfield. Is that what you said? That's what I do. I sprinkle just a couple of handfuls around the base of the plant because most common way for early blight to get started is when it gets splashed up onto the lower leaves by either rain or by overhead watering, which I try to avoid, but sometimes can't. But yeah, um, and I do it, uh, if it's been a problem in the past, and it probably hadn't since this is a new garden, um, I probably a new garden, doing it once early in the season is going to be all you need to do. In an older garden where it's been a problem, in the past, you might want to do it once a month. Okay, do I need to trim off the bottom leaves to help keep the splashes, give, make them work a no, little harder to get to the top? I've, I've never found that to be that effective. I think the cornmeal okay. is probably going to do everything you need. I will tell you that some varieties seem to be much more susceptible than others. Uh, Roma is probably, any of the Roma-type tomatoes uh, um, 
are going to be more susceptible on those. Yeah, you might trim the uh, lower leaves on those, but on other varieties, I I don't think it's worth the effort. I got the ones that you uh, you, you talk about, celebrity, and then the uh, the uh, the small. Yeah, Sun Gold and Sweet One Hundred. Yeah. yeah. I doubt you're going to have a problem with it. Just just a couple of handfuls of whole ground cornmeal around the base should should keep you should keep you clear. All right, Bob, I appreciate it, and I'm on it. I appreciate you, Wayne. You have a great Easter, and Don, let's move on and talk to Ralph. Uh, good morning, Ralph. Got a question for you about cornmeal. Yes, sir. You gave some. Uh... I heard you one day, I think it was there one day, something about it. that's good for foot soap, too? Yes, sir, and we have to be clear now, the cornmeal is not the magic. The cornmeal is this beneficial fungus called trichoderma, which grows on the cornmeal. But, uh, yeah, it uh, you can, uh, if you're fighting toenail fungus, or, I mean, athlete's foot, it'll knock that out overnight. But uh, the, the treatment for toenail fungus, and this comes from my niece, who's a doctor down in Mexico, and says, hey, we've been doing this for generations. This is nothing new. But uh, you make... Not a not a liquidy material, but kind of like a paste almost, uh, just with uh, warm water and cornmeal. Let it stand for about eight or eight or ten hours, and by that time you'll have the trichoderma well activated. And then soak the affected foot in that for about an hour. Do it every day for about a week, then knock off a couple of weeks, then come back and do it every day for a week. That will normally knock it out completely. Now, I use the same batch of cornmeal for about three days in a row and then make some fresh. Um, you'll just have to see how it holds up to you. The warmer it gets, uh, the, the more often you have to make a fresh batch of cornmeal but pretty cheap and a whole lot safer. In fact, I find the people that most commonly ask about it are the doctors that don't want to take the medicine they're prescribing their patients because they know what it does to your uh, to your liver and all. So uh, that that in a nutshell, so to speak, is uh, is what you're doing to control. Uh, I mean, it can be used to control ringworm. Like I say, it'll knock out athlete's foot overnight. And then, of course, in agriculture, we use it for a wide range of fungal problems, including oak wilt. Okay, that's just regular cornmeal. Well, it's what we call whole ground cornmeal, which is basically just ground up corn. You do not want the stuff they sell in the grocery stores, baking cornmeal, or what they call enriched cornmeal. It's very much a misnomer because they polish away like 14 essential nutrients and then put 10 of them back. I think that's what George Bush used to call fuzzy math. I still come out several nutrients short. So if you buy it at HEB, you're probably going to get what they call stone ground. If you shop for natural grocers or Whole Foods, they will sell it as whole ground. And uh, the stuff you get at the feed store works just as well as what you get at the grocery store. All righty. I do appreciate that very much, sir. All right, back to the phone line. It's going to be Mark and Charlotte and Bill and Fred, and Mark is up first. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Happy Easter from your Houston contingent. Well, happy Easter to uh, everybody over toward Harris County land. Thank you. I'm the dubious beneficiary of what I think might have been bird planted and fertilized canna plants. And I, I didn't attend... <laughs> I did not attend to the patch when they first came up. Amen, my bad. 
So I'm hoping you can help me avoid chiropractic bills or the collateral damage from dynamite trying to get rid of them <laughs> in the rise of <laughs> Well, so maybe, you know. Maybe something I can paint or spray on the tips of the shafts where I cut them off, hopefully, please. And not not, not going to work. Sorry. But a grubbing hoe, you know, two sessions with a grubbing hoe should totally remove them because the cannas don't come back from the roots. They only come back from the rhizomes, and the rhizomes are no more than one to two inches deep. Uh, in your area, you've got nice, soft soil. And my rock, yeah, it might be more of a problem, but it's just, um, you know, you can practically use a sod cutter, but that that would be overkill. But... Um, the if you if you wanted to do something other than that physical work, you could get yourself some black plastic put over it or clear plastic, either one. Weight down the edges, leave it for about six weeks in the heat, and that will literally steam sterilize the soil and will totally kill them out. But um, I've been successful. It usually takes twice. I usually think I've got them all, and about two weeks later, I'll have maybe. Oh, five percent of them sprout back up, but after that second grubbing hoe session, uh, they're gone forever. So, if you can manage that, I recommend the grubbing hoe. If you can't, uh, the process we call solarizing, which simply means uh, moistening the soil and then cover it with uh, plastic, weight down the edges, and uh, let it get up to 180 degrees underneath the plastic. Probably not going to work this week because it's pretty chilly, but we're pretty close to summertime, and that will totally eliminate them from that bed if that's what you're looking to do. Well, that, that sort of sounds better than the grubbing hoe and the possible <laughs> chiropractic bills afterwards. But, uh, you can tell the yeah, man that does it, it himself. Uh, you can tell the man that does it himself versus the guy that's got a 14-year-old son that needs some exercise. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah. My, my sons are adults and they have their own families, and I haven't been able to get them to volunteer for this job yet. So. <laughs> uh, let's say I can, I can identify with that. But solarizing will work just fine. But remember, solarizing relies on some warm temperatures and bright sunlight. And that's just right around the corner. So probably this is not the week to do it. But in the very near future, you certainly can. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much, sir. If you okay. were... If you how, how big an area is this, Mark? I think it's probably four by five or something in that vicinity. Okay, if you don't want to go to the trouble of, of uh, solarizing, just get yourself, go by somewhere, might even be the grocery store that has cardboard boxes, and, you know, put down cardboard about four layers deep on top of that area, put a little bit of mulch on top of it, and that's probably going to eliminate 99% of them. Well, that sounds easy. Actually, the solarizing doesn't sound too bad because I've okay. got a few of these plastic stakes I can stick through them, and oh, I sure. just need to get the, need to get them cut down low enough to be able to do that. That's right. That's well, it's it, it just yeah, the solarizing is uh, it, it just it's got to be warm for that to work. Cardboard you could do today, but solarizing is a a mm-hmm. great plan. Um, the other thing that I, I hate weed block fabric. But in my own garden, if I've and, and realize I'm gardening, uh, my garden is ever expanding in uh, sort of native hill country, 
prairie, and some of those native grasses are tough to get out. I will put down the weed block for one season and then pull it back up, and it's really it's really damaged the soil underneath. But I can bring soil back with compost and things like that. But uh, mm-hmm. that would be the other option is uh, instead of using plastic. And remember with your plastic, you don't want to put too many holes in it because you're trying to make it like your car on a sunny day on a parking lot. You want it to really get hot underneath that plastic. So you're better to weight it down than to stake it down. But uh, if you want to use something different that you could stake down, uh, you know, get yourself, uh, you know, a, a four by six piece of uh, weed block fabric, put that down for a couple of months, and I think you'll totally eliminate them that way as well. Well, I, I think the dark plastic, which will probably get much hotter than clear plastic. Oh, yeah. Weighted, weighted down with rocks and bricks and stuff like that is a that's a very doable thing for me at my age so well get with it and and, uh, you know what's really wonderful about talking to you is you give so many alternatives to a single simple question (laughs) well you you have to remember i started my grandfather's greenhouse when i was five years old and i think i have made every mistake you can make in gardening and i'm just trying to keep you from making the same ones but i've you know been forced to adapt and my training is as research biologist so i can i can pretty much tell you how it works as well as uh as exactly how to do it but hey it's a real pleasure talking to people that uh, uh that enjoy their gardening so uh good to hear from the houston family Thank you very much, sir. Take care. You too. Thank you. Goodbye. All right. Charlotte is up next. Uh, good morning, Charlotte. Good morning, Bob. Um, I have a good morning. question. I was interested in buying a lime tree. I live in Lavernia. What kind of lime tree would you recommend? Well, of all the citrus trees, limes are the least hardy. So you're very definitely going to have to give some winter protection. And there are two different types of lime trees Uh, one is what we call either mexican lime or key lime and this is you know that nice little golf ball size lime and the the beauty of the key lime mexican lime is that it can bloom almost year round and you get continuing production you can from a fair size lime tree or lime bush you can you can pick limes almost year round if you prefer the big old limes we refer to these as persian limes then uh, you would get those varieties and they produce like a lemon or like a grapefruit or like an orange they bloom in the spring and you'll get your lime production late summer and on into the fall so if you're looking for big limes you look for a persian lime if you're looking for a you know ever producing lime then you go with the smaller limes which will either say mexican lime or key lime most of them have little short thorns which are plenty sharp but there is now a thornless mexican lime out there that you might want to look at too but uh any of you know either type of lime will work well for you but do be prepared to protect it if we have a cold winter um, okay, so do you have any shades of green? I called Fanix, but they don't have no lime trees. You know, call back tomorrow. I can't leave. Uh, I'm sitting here in my office with headphones on, and I'm I'm kind of <laughs> tied to the machine. We are closed today for Easter, but one of our folks will run out back and look. We have had, but um, they I, I tell people our inventory changes by the minute. So before you make a trip, uh, do call, but uh, if we're out of them, we'll definitely be getting more of them in the near future. But uh, just give a call, uh, 9 to 4, Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4, most Sundays, and uh, what's your check for you? Okay. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, Charlotte. Thank you. And goodbye. 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. The uh, the lineup right now is Bill and Fred and Richard and Mike. And Bill is up first. Good morning, Bill. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Yeah, this is Bill up here in Blanco. Yes, long sir. Time no, long time no talk. <laughs> Glad to hear you doing well. Yeah. Um, my first question is my son, Marine son, he lives in St. Croix, Virgin Islands. Uh-huh. And he's a wonderful gardener, but he has to do it, you know, in containers because uh, where he lives has got a concrete patio. Okay. He, he said he's got really two great tomato plants with about 30 tomatoes on them together. But every time he goes out there, all these white flies or something come out like by the thousands and uh i need to know uh i don't know if they're aphids or spider mite i don't know what they could be they're they're white Uh, fly they're they're vegetable white fly the actual that's the actual name of them bill mm -hmm. and uh his most effective control which he can probably get at uh have not been to st croix sounds like a beautiful part of the world they have a home depot there very good. Well, look for um, a soap product. Uh, you could either get just insecticidal soap. There are many different brands. There's a brand called Safers. S-A-F-E-R-S has probably been around longest. But get an insecticidal soap. If he can't find just straight insecticidal soap, uh, there there is actually a combination of Spinosad, which is a safe product, uh, Spinosad plus insecticidal soap, and it's simply called Spinosad soap. But uh, just uh, and and it's different from dish soap. It's what we call a long chained soap of a long chain fatty acid, and it's the only thing I know of that gets the eggs, the larvae, and the adults on white fly. But one or two sprayings will totally knock it out and it'll no longer be a problem for him it's called spinosad soft soap no spinosad soap or you can just get uh what they call insecticidal soap whichever one of those he finds will uh will do a very thorough job on the white fly i'll have to look at my inventory uh i was looking i did find some neem oil and it talks about insecticidal that's not any good for that well, neem is a, uh, even though it's organic, it's a, a systemic product, and um, it's not what I would use. Plus, neem has okay. a very short shelf life. If your neem is more than six months old, you might as well throw it out and buy some more. Uh, oh, insecticidal okay. soap, on the other hand, has a shelf life of about 20 years. So uh, okay. look out there and see if you've got any safer insecticidal soap. I would okay. imagine he can find that uh you know, just about any any outlet like Home Depot should carry it, but uh, uh, any gardening outlet, of course, would have it. It's it's a liquid, so uh, you know the post office won't send it, but I'm sure you could send it to him via FedEx or um, uh, UPS or something like that if you need to mail it to him. Well, uh, I send those priority boxes. Yeah, and you know I send food and other things to him, so. Uh... Well, there's no product out there safer than just plain old Safer's insecticidal soap. And like I say, it'll keep for 20 years for them, and uh, it's the best thing going for Whitefly. Okay. All right. Well, I'm tired of covering up my tomatoes because we've dodged the bullet. <laughs> we didn't get, I don't even think we got any rain last night. You know, oh, it was about four, I, I didn't even see lightning. 
I got 13 one-hundreds and about four claps of thunder. So uh, uh, the weatherman strikes again. But, you know, thank goodness it wasn't the hail. But uh, uh, well, a few I'll things be. in life we we can't control, the weather's one of them. So, Bill, it's always good to hear from you, and I uh, wish you a most happy Easter. Thank you Same so much. You. you take Thank care. Thank you, down sir. There. You too. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, Fred's up next. Good morning, Fred. Morning, sir. Good hey, morning. Um, can you hear me? Very well. Thank you. All right. Yeah, right outside my the front front porch is a little ten by twelve. Just got a little garden, three rose uh-huh. bushes. Been there for fifteen years. Two years ago, I went all organic, and I, I'm really liking it. Um, what surrounding it two years ago on the same time, I put, recovered some uh, sandstone off a job we did out in St. Hedwig area. Yes, sir. It's real dense, yellow, orange colored sandstone. I line, I bordered this little garden with that stuff. Uh-huh. Well, Very good. Just the last, last few days, there is this yellow fungi or something that's growing out of, coming out of that sandstone. Have you ever heard of that? It's probably a lichen. Uh, there's yellow algae, but uh, neither one of them are problematic to your plants. There, there's something slightly different called a slime mold, which could be started, and uh, it doesn't attack the plant, but it kind of waterproofs the soil. Uh, in any event, if you want to get rid of it, uh, go to the hardware store and get your bag of what they call dusting sulfur. And uh, just a very light application of uh, sulfur over that will—it'll knock it out overnight. Well, it's just—it just comes out of these. Sto- the stones are about—they're real heavy. So I just the size that I could pick up and put in my truck, you know, uh-huh. basketball, basketball, football size. Right. I just like right out of the side in the morning, walk out there, and there's a blob about, you know, the size of your hand. It, well, bright, bright it's, it's real yeah. dense, real heavy. Yeah, it's probably a slime mold. It's not coming out of the stone, but it's growing on the stone. The stone has some minerals in it that it really likes. And, uh, again, you can scrape it off. You can spray it. Uh, uh, a little bit of uh, just bleach would totally kill it, but you want to keep the bleach very strictly off your plants. But if you want something that's that's safe, easy, and doesn't involve any liquid, you can just get a little bit of dusting sulfur and dust on there, and you'll totally eliminate it. Okay. The other part is that area right outside St. Hedwig, which was just a hayfield or pasture. We built a brand yeah. new elementary school two years ago out there. Very good. Three feet down in the ground was these huge pieces of sandstone. <laughs> know that I've been, I, I'm so curious to the origin of those rocks. Well, you're going to have to talk to a good geologist, and while I know a fair amount about hydrogeology, which is, you know, those aquifers, but, um, you know, a good geologist, uh, sandstone is produced by high pressure and uh, the proper binding material in a heck of a lot of time, but uh, find yourself a good geologist out there and uh, ask him about the history of St. Hedwig. You know, all of this land was once uh, a seabed, and in some areas, uh, you know, and the seas came and went several times and uh, left limestone behind in some areas with our karst, uh, what we call our karst geology of the hill country and other areas where you are, it left a sandier deposit, which became limestone. And uh, it's not that the seas were higher 
I, I do know this much, but the land mass was actually lower. It's been pushed up through tectonic action. But remember, our St. Hedwig and San Antonio and this whole area spent millions and millions of years uh, as the bottom of an ocean. Yeah. And um, I've been I'm a plumbing contractor and been okay. all over the, all this county and all over areas. And it's the first. I mean, they were loading it on 18 wheelers on flatbed with forklifts, taking it for to put for landscape. It, it looked like giant sofas. Oh yeah, with water. Some yeah. layers in it with, with iridescent. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't tell you the exact mechanism. I know in general, but you find yourself a good geologist. You talk to talk yeah. to the science teacher of the high school or, uh, you know, one of the community colleges. It's, I, it's got me so curious, and, and there, there's no sign of life in any of it. No, no shell, no anything yeah. in any of it. We, yeah. All right, well, I appreciate your time. It, it is what we call a sedimentary stone, as is limestone, and that is, is compared to what we call igneous rock, like lava and uh, granite and things like that, which were once molten. So sandstone is one of our most beautiful uh, sedimentary stones out there. and uh, it, is, it is beautiful. It's, 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 the colors are, I've never seen it anywhere, you know, except that, that area. And it's real easy to work with. So, uh, yeah, you can take care of that little slime mold growing on it with either Clorox or uh, or a little bit of sulfur, and uh, it's not going to be a problem to your soil. So uh, you go for it, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you very much, sir. Have a good, good Easter. All right, back to gardening on just an absolutely beautiful Easter Sunday morning in South Texas. <laughs> it is, it's just gorgeous out there. Hope you're, hope you're celebrating appropriately. We'll just leave it at that. But, uh, boy, look around you and just be, just be thankful for all the beauty that we live in. We're going to talk to Richard and Mike and Diane and Martha. Richard's next. Good morning, Richard. Morning, Hi, Richard. Happy morning, sir. To you as well. Well, I, uh, similar to the last caller, uh, I heard you talking about limestone, um, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on um, how to keep um, like sidewalks and, and chop block limestone from uh, having that algae uh, grow on it, because uh, I think I got the idea from you to put a little hydrogen peroxide like in a dog bowl, and that, that works really well. Yeah. Um, but after you pressure wash it, uh, what can you put on it that wouldn't kill the plants around uh, that could help prevent? Probably hydrogen peroxide is about as good as you're going to do. Um, in, you know, inside, uh, on concrete floors and greenhouses and things like that, we use a little uh, dilute Clorox, but over time, chlorine, any kind of bleach, you know, can, can be hard on the plants. If you, if you don't overdo it, as long as you rather spray it on, if you just, uh, put on your rubber dishwashing gloves and got a sponge, um, if you, or a sponge mop, if you don't want to bend over, uh, a little bit of, uh, any kind of bleach would take care of it in a big hurry. I suspect that uh, the stronger hydrogen peroxide, probably the 3% as opposed to the 1%, that would almost certainly do the same thing for you. Unfortunately, there's not anything that's going to keep it from coming back, uh, but um, in that case, the bleach is probably going to last longer than the peroxide. But again, you just want to keep it off the plants and on the flagstone. Okay. So what would be like the, the application rate and to, to extend on that further, like what if you were to want to clean like gutters because all that water is going to drip down and so uh -huh. they can just mist it uh, and, and dilute the Clorox um, to where it doesn't really drip? Again, what I would do, I would mix it in a bucket 
And let's say I've got a ranch bucket, which is normally about three gallons. I put a gallon or two of water, and then I put like a quarter of a cup of Clorox. And then I get one of these old sponge mops on the end of a stick. I mean, they, they're cheap. They don't last real well or hold up real well, but you can get them that you don't even have to touch a sponge, and it's got a little lever you can push that sort of rings it out so you're not dripping it everywhere. And uh, you can do a pretty long sidewalk in a very few minutes, and if you do rinse that sponge mop out afterwards, it's going to last you for, oh, at least six months or longer and uh, probably cost you $5 at the grocery store. So that would be the easiest way without any spraying and uh, without, without a serious amount of bending over <laughs> which which gets to be more and more important these days i hear you well that makes a whole lot of sense i appreciate your time always a pleasure i appreciate the call richard you uh have a great easter and we'll talk again and i'll talk to mike next good morning mike our lord jesus christ is risen today bob praise yes. be the lord uh, praise be yes sir bob i have a couple of questions for you I have a uh, Seta Satsuma I got okay. from you last year. Mm-hmm. I I think it's a lime. Is that right? No, it's a, it's a tangerine. Sito, Miho, Kimbro, those are all varieties of tangerines. Tangerine. I, I was yeah. supposed to buy a Myers lemon, but this was so pretty I had to buy it. <laughs> well, you know, many years ago, Mark Twain said, too much of many things is extravagance, but too much whiskey is just enough. In this case, too, too many plants are just enough, so uh, you can still go get that Myers lemon. The nice thing about your Sito Satsuma Tangerine is that it is more cold-hardy than just about any other citrus out there. That thing's going to go down to 18 degrees without any damage, and once it gets up to a fair size, you'll pick a couple of bushels of fruit every year off of it. Well, that's good to hear. I didn't know if it was uh, cold hardy or not. But yes, I sir. have these, I guess, fruit all over it, uh-huh. uh, about quarter-inch <clears throat> size, and some of them have fallen off, but there's probably 30 or 40 all over it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Is that the fruit? Yes, sir. That's uh, probably look like little grapes, or you know, maybe almost English peas when they start out. But yeah. that's what's going to give you a nice uh, tennis ball size fruit come fall. Now, especially on a young plant, some of the fruit does not get properly pollinated, and the tree chemically senses that and drops those fruit off because. Uh, you know, the purpose of fruit is not to please us, is to make new trees and make seed. So uh, you can always expect a portion of the fruit to fall off, but uh, by the same token, you should have quite a number of them hang on uh, through the growing season. Keep it well watered through the summer months, and you'll have some very delicious eating and juicing come about October. Uh, should they be thinned out any? No, I've never found that necessary on citrus. If uh, you know, if you have clusters of two or three together, yeah, you might want to thin that down to just one. But uh, it's not like peaches. Uh, rarely do you ever have to send thin citrus out. Okay, well, they are in clusters, all right, so I can thin those. It's good yeah. to know I can put it in the ground, or should I just put it in a larger pot? It's, it's a lot easier to take. Tall. A lot easier to take care of in the ground, but if you move, you can't take it with you. So it's. Well, 
Yeah, if you're planning like me on staying in the in your forever house, as you say, I'd put it in the ground if you uh, you know if you have a good idea of where you want to have it, Mike. Well, I can do that. I have a couple other questions, Bob. <clears throat> on the cornmeal, uh-huh. I was going to. Uh, what is it? You put eight ounces to a five-gallon bucket of water, let it sit overnight for oak quilt then, treatment. I'm sorry. For oak quilt treatment, what are you using it for? <clears throat> for uh, what I believe may be brown patch. Okay. On brown patch, um, I just dust it out dry. I think it's a lot easier. The application rate is about 10 pounds uh, per uh, 1,500 square feet of yard. But uh, if you want to soak it, yeah, two cups to five gallons and then spray the liquid. But uh, brown patch, uh, I think it's easier. Just set your spreader about one-third open and just apply it like you would dry fertilizer. Oh, okay. I can do that even easier. Yes, sir. Uh, another question I have is, and you said that's about 10 pounds for 1,500 square feet? Uh, make it about 10 pounds for preventive, 10 pounds per 1,000 square feet. For curative, about 15 pounds per 1,000 square feet. Okay. Another question I have on uh, molasses uh, to put in my compost pile. Uh-huh. Uh, I have co- uh, coffee grounds in there. And I've been (coughs) trying to layer layer it, Uh uh, coffee grounds and then leaves and then so on, uh, table droppings. But uh, what is the uh, uh, amount of molasses to water I would spray on there? Well, if you're going to use a liquid molasses, about two tablespoons per gallon. Two tablespoons per gallon. And I wasn't going to spray it. I was going to use a uh, cauldron uh, uh, pot like a bunch of holes sure. in it yeah yeah just, just drench it drench it that's fine and if you want to make it even easier mike you can get what they call dry molasses and if you get something like the nature's creation brand it doesn't clump and cake and get hard like some of the old-fashioned ones did and if you want to you can just put a layer of coffee grounds and a layer of dry molasses it's not crystalline molasses it doesn't dissolve but uh, it's like molasses has been soaked into uh into some cane or something like that. So if you want to make it as easy as possible, get yourself a bag of Nature's Creation dry molasses and just make a thin layer of that periodically. Uh, it's no better than using the liquid. It's just a little bit less work. But if you want to use the liquid, uh, two to three tablespoons per gallon and use it as a drench. Okay. I uh, have the liquid, so that's what I'll use. Okay. Uh, another uh, question I had, you talked to a lady, Virginia, earlier about confederate uh, jasmine and oriental jasmine are they the same no confederate jasmine or star jasmine are the same and is there an oriental jasmine there are a bunch of jasmines out there i don't know one by that name but i'm familiar with uh oh golly there there are a lot of different ones sambac s-a-m-b-a-c maybe what you're calling oriental uh, Grand Duke might be one you're calling Oriental. Those are tropical, and they are bushes rather than vines, and they're not cold-hardy. And I'm right up to news time, so uh, we'll talk again. Everybody else, uh, stick around. We'll talk to Diane and Martha here on KTSA San Antonio. We're going to visit with uh, Diane and Martha and Doug and Carl, and we start with uh, Diane. Good morning, Diane. Hi. Happy Resurrection Sunday. And to you as well. Thank you. Um, I've got some kind of, um, it looks almost like snow, but I think it's a fungus 
in my bush bean barrel. Okay. And is it on I, the soil I, or on the plants? Yes, it's on the soil. Okay. It's yeah. You're probably keeping your bush beans just a little bit uh, too moist. Uh, that's usually a sign that, uh, that that there's a little bit too much moisture in the soil, but it should not impact your plants at all. If it's just sort of, like you say, just sort of snowy looking, you can also get some fungi that, that kind of make such a crust on top of the soil, it's hard to keep things appropriately watered. So all I would do is just, you know, physically just, you know, break it up just a little bit very carefully. If you wanted to spray something on it that would control it, I'd maybe use a little bit of dilute down to 1% hydrogen peroxide, which shouldn't hurt your bush beans. But uh, this, isn't, this isn't an issue. It basically is telling you you've got really good, rich soil that might be just a little bit on the wet side. Okay, I, I dug it out with a little shovel, and it, the next day <laughs> it was back. So I <laughs> well, put cornmeal see- on it. And that will probably help. But uh, the the thing to always remember when you have a fungus of any sort, and the great great majority of fungi are beneficial, but what we see up on the surface is the fruiting body, the reproductive structure of the fungus. The actual body of the fungus is uh, thread-like, and it may extend for long distances through the soil. So uh, what you did was, in effect, like you were cutting off the flowers on a plant, but without hurting the plant. So it's going to keep coming back and back and back. If you want to, now I don't want you to overdo it, or you can burn with it, but you could also get a little bit of sulfur and just do a very fine dusting of sulfur over that area, and that'll pretty much knock it back. Disadvantage to that is that you're killing some good fungi as well as some bad fungi, but bottom line is I wouldn't worry about it too much. And if you do anything, just get one of those little, uh, what do they call it, a tined digger or something, something like that has little three tines on it, and just, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of, just rough up the soil a little bit underneath your beans periodically without going deeply enough to get into the roots of the plant, and uh, you'll control that stuff with uh, no problem. But it's 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 not damaging in any way, form, or fashion, so uh, don't make it one of your priorities. Okay, and also on my tomato plants, I have, it's kind of a tan, bumpy looking, which I'm guessing is a fungus or mush. Um, I think it's a fungus also. On the soil? Yes, sir. Okay. Again, it is probably a fungus. Um, again, there, there are thousands, probably tens, hundreds of thousands of different kinds of uh of fungi and this is it's just telling you you have really rich soil because fungi the way that they that they exist is that they are working to decompose things in the soil and their source of energy is breaking down some of the organic material in the soil so when uh when you see this stuff on the surface it's just telling you that uh you've got really rich soil and it's not really anything to worry about okay and I have one more question. Sure. Um, I live down the road. I live down the road from you, and uh, I've got there's. It looks black and dry, but then whenever it rains, it's this dark green gel-like substance <laughs> all in the yeah. yard, and it looks like I think it's algae. 
it is an algae and uh or it could be a slime mold and again i i have the same thing when i walk back through my hills and things like that it's it's kind of like green jelly just thin sheets of it and uh it's going to dry up Uh, i can promise you one of the few things i will tell you for certain about texas weather pretty soon it's going to be hot and dry and you're not going to see that anymore. So I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, again, if you wanted to get rid of it, dilute hydrogen peroxide would take care of it. But you're uh, you're going to a lot of unnecessary work. Okay. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Good to talk to a neighbor, Diane. <laughs> you have a great Sunday. Thank you. All right. Martha's up next. Uh, good morning, Martha. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you this morning? Oh, doing all right, doing all right. So um, my mom gave me a pot of tiny tin. I've I've never had those before. So there's about seven little plants in this pot. Okay, now this is a Uh, tomato we're talking about? Yes, a tiny tin. Yeah. Okay, so what I wanted to ask was, should I transfer them out to their own single pot? And normally on my tomatoes, we dig, we bury them deep. So okay. they're only two two inches at that uh-huh. time. When do I transplant them, and do I plant these tiny plants deep? <laughs> well, sure. you, you you can plant them as deep as you like, and you say the plants are about two inches tall now. Yeah, about two. Okay, inches. okay. When you look at a little tomato seedling coming up, the first. Two little things that come out are sort of elongated, rounded. Uh, they're not true leaves. They're actually a part of the seed. We call them cotyledons or seed leaves. And then the next set of leaves that comes out looks more like a tomato leaf, and those are your first true leaves. I would let these little plants get up to where they have at least two sets of true leaves. And at that point, you can very gently divide them and replant them. If you're going to go straight into the ground with them, I would let them get up to where they have maybe four sets of true leaves. And then at that point, you can very gently separate them. And you can bury them as deeply as you like. Tomatoes will grow roots up and down the stem. So we're not worried about root flares or anything like that. But at this point, those are very tender little plants. We want to be careful not to break them up. So we're going to let them. We're going to let them get up. Uh, you're going to keep them in a good sunny spot because that's what's going to turn them into good stocky plants. But we're going to let them get up to where they have uh, two to four sets of true leaves before you get in there and very gently divide them and repot them. Gotcha. That's a, that's great. And one last question. I, uh-huh. I'm trying to start seeds indoor. My problem is they, they sprout, and then they get really long and skinny. Uh-huh. And I, I kind of figured that was the lack of sunshine. And you're exactly right, because uh, there's a hormone in the stems of those plants that make the cells stretch, and that hormone is broken down by sunlight. So inside, where you don't have as much sun, those things stretch out, and they do get very spindly and very weak. If uh, The best thing to do would be able to be move them out on a porch or patio or somewhere they got stronger light. If you have to rely on artificial light, it needs to be very bright, it needs to be the right color, and it needs to be very close to them. So you're going to 
get uh, some sort of, quote, grow light. Nowadays, they make uh, some LED grow lights. There's a place here in town. Um, oh, shoot. It's, uh, let me think for a second about the name. It's uh, uh, that, And the LED lights are very, they're the, they're the right wavelength of light. Um, and then um, they're also fluorescent bulbs, which make the right wavelength of light. So you can go with either one of those things, but the, you need to get the bulbs down to within probably six inches of your little seedlings that you're starting. So uh, what you're going to do is, in effect, make your make your own little seed starting area, and you can leave those lights on 24 hours a day. At this point in the seed's life, uh, it, it doesn't care whether it has day and night cycles, and uh, you just want super bright light to make a little bit stronger, stockier plant. Yes, yes. Now, if I don't have access to that light, how about setting up a table under a complete shady area? Would, would that help the plants? Well, remember that it's that it's sunlight that that makes them more stocky. If it's very shady, they're still going to be tall and spindly. If it's very very bright out there, even though it's not direct sun, you will get a stockier plant. But again, the more the more and stronger sunlight you have, the uh, the the more compact and strong your little plants are going to be. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, sir. You're sure welcome. Uh, the company I was trying to think of is called Bright Ideas, and uh, they uh, they they deal. They're probably the biggest expert in town on uh, the new LED lights and the grow lights and things like that. So Troy and his staff. They used to be out in Windcrest. I think they've moved over in the Bandera Road area. But uh, you can talk to Bright Ideas, and uh, they'll they'll be the best place that you could probably go to buy a little setup that is made specifically for starting and growing plants. Well, thank you so much, sir. It is always a pleasure, Martha. You have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you. All right. Back to gardening on a beautiful Saturday morning. I will uh, tell you, Dr. Kirby will be here in a little while. We will be doing a live and local pet show, so uh, will not be a will not be a best of. Dr. Kirby will be here to answer your pet questions in uh, oh about another forty minutes or so. Right now, we're still talking gardening. It's going to be Doug and Carl and Zach and Frank and Doug's up first. Good morning, Doug. How you doing? I'm great, sir. How are you today? <laughs> oh, I'm doing okay. I'm calling to find out. Do you believe it's necessary to put the whole ground cornmeal on some ash tree seedlings, you know, to keep them from dying? It's been so wet and damp the last few weeks and months. <laughs> I don't think it's at all necessary. In fact, I know a lot of people that would be trying to kill those little seedlings. So uh, uh, cornmeal is not, not going to affect them one way or the other. So uh, I wouldn't worry about it. Well, it, it's the it's it's the uh, fragrant ash. It's the cuspidata. Ah, okay. Cuspidata. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, again, it's uh, there. There are not that many fungal diseases that are going to attack them. And the thing that 
that can kill a plant like that is not really a fungus, but the way that water can cause a problem is if it stays so wet that the water drives all the oxygen out of the soil, then it's lack of oxygen that is what would be damaging to them, and cornmeal's not going to affect that one way or another. So, uh, yeah, if there's anything you could do to improve drainage, then that would certainly help you with that. But uh, cornmeal, I think, would be pretty much a waste of time and money at this point. Okay. Well, I was just curious because, like I said, it's been so wet lately. It's uh yeah it 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 has been and it's uh it's just wet on the surface. I wish we'd get enough rain that it would really soak the soil, but uh, uh I don't think it's going to bother bother your fragrant ash. They're they're pretty tolerant of a wide range of conditions. So uh um just do anything you can to uh to be sure you've got good drainage and and save your cornmeal for a more serious problem. All right, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for the call, Doug. Carl's next. Uh, let's punch that line and say good morning, Carl. Happy sunny Sunday morning to you, Bob. Uh, to you? you as well, sir. I'm good. How about you this morning? Pretty good. I got a amateur lawn care question. Um, <laughs> excuse my ignorance. Excuse my extreme ignorance. But, uh, <laughs> oh, do not purchased- apologize. Yes, sir. I recently purchased a house uh, here within the last six months with a well-established St. Augustine lawn. Um, Very good. Two big, big, huge live oak trees uh-huh. um, in the front in the front yard. Um, and as you know, they just lost. Well, followed by their acorns, their leaves, and their, their pollen <laughs> catkins. It was quite a mess for about three months. And yeah, I, it... I, I've cleared them off the lawn. Um, because, uh, you know, it, they were matted on the lawn. I worried it would, sure. it would kill the grass, of course. And I'm noticing as the, as the grass is coming out of the dormancy, and, you know, it, it looks good from a distance, but I'm getting these kind of uh, uh, bare patches, or it's more of a thinness. And uh-huh. I'm wondering, if it, is it a – I don't think it's a watering problem. We've got plenty of good rain here recently. And um, would you point me towards, a, you know, fertilizer or something? I've heard alfalfa. Uh, pellets are even good. I, well, I'm, I'm, reading, I'm reading lots. I just need to get going in the right direction while it's still well. Yeah, it's uh, any good organic fertilizer. There are some that are alfalfa-based. In my opinion, the best of the alfalfa-based ones is a product by a company called Nature's Creation, and they call that premium lawn food. Uh, there are other companies. Maestro Grow makes a very good product called Texas Tea, T-E-E-A, rather. Um, Medina makes a very good one, which is called Growin, G-R-O-W-I-N, Growin Green. And all three of those, are excellent products and would be very, very good for your grass. But I have to tell you, it sounds to me like you've got two beautiful oak trees, and the yeah. problem is going to be shade. Yeah, um, yeah that, the, that is the, the problem. There, there's lots yeah. of shade. <laughs> And and there's, you know, the sunlight provides the energy for life to continue, for plants to grow, and all the fertilizer in the world doesn't replace the sun's energy. So um, you're going to have a choice of either getting into some very regular and expensive pruning or at some point, it's simply going to get so shady in those areas, we're going to have to think about a ground cover like Asiatic jasmine or English ivy or something else as opposed to grass. Because St. Augustine is our most shade-tolerant grass, the most shade-tolerant St. Augustines. One is called Delmar, the other is called Palmetto. But a good, healthy live oak is ultimately going to create so much shade that, that there's no grass that's going to do well. 
You could always plant something that looks like grass, which is dwarf monkey grass. It'll grow with a third as much light as uh, even St. Augustine. But with a new home, and congratulations on that, you've got a whole lot of other things to do. So fertilizing, I'd be doing that a couple of times a year. If you see, and most people are seeing a lot of June bugs right now, they're going to be laying the eggs for grub worms. So probably good idea to put on an application of beneficial nematodes. But don't pull your hair out over thinning grass because you and Dr. Kirby have the same problem. <laughs> He's got a wife that won't let him trim his trees very much. <laughs> Consequently, okay, very looking, thin grass. But uh, I look across yeah. at the neighbors, and they don't have a tree in the front, and I'm getting yard envy already. So, yeah. <laughs> well, every, everybody's got sun, want shade, and everybody's got shade, want sun. Um, the best solution is usually have a part of your yard that gives you nice sun for your croquet court or whatever else. And uh, uh, that that shady area sure is a nice place to have an outdoor kitchen or a lot of other things, but it's not so good for grass. So, uh, yeah, let us help you any way we can with questions about that. But uh, you're not looking at anything you're failing to do. It's just your trees are thick and beautiful, and uh, that doesn't agree with the grass. All righty, that's kind of what I was thinking, but I was hoping it was something else. All righty, I appreciate your, your help. Thank well, you. and congratulations on your new home, Carl. Appreciate it. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take one more call, and that would be Zach. Uh, good morning, Zach. Good morning. Happy Easter, Bob. How are you? I'm well, sir. Happy Easter to you. Good. I have a couple of questions. Um, one is, um, in our yard, we've been seeing quite a few of these kind of large mushrooms pop up that are orange and pink and kind of musty orange on the bottom side <laughs> yes sir um are those dangerous for your dogs and uh, should they be controlled well they would give your puppy an upset tummy i am not aware of any super toxic mushrooms dr kirby will be here in about 30 minutes and we can ask him about that but um they they would they would give you an upset tummy they would probably give your dog an upset tummy most dogs have the sense not to eat them but you know some puppies and uh some things like my two labs that <laughs> i love the the poster somebody showed me it said until i acquired a lab i did not know how much of the world was edible <laughs> and so uh they're they're not anything that i would you know be be taking extreme measures to try to get rid of as you probably heard me tell a previous caller those things have a huge network of an underground it's called a mycelium it's the body of the fungus and what you're seeing up on top is just the reproductive structure if you want to substantially reduce them Go to the uh, hardware store and get yourself a bag of dusting sulfur. Dust some sulfur around the area, and it'll totally knock those things out. But uh, I sure wouldn't be losing any sleep over it. Okay. Um, And then another quick question, something I do lose sleep over, is I'm trying to find the whole ground cornmeal. I get stone ground cornmeal, and does that work for brown patch? Uh, Yes, sir. And that is pretty much the same thing, but you're going to spend some money on it. Um, Whereabouts do you live? I'm in Cross Mountain Range. Okay. Um, 
you could probably find it uh hill country african violets is just a little ways north of you uh Strutties over there which is just a little ways north of you on uh, i-10 both of those guys are going to have whole ground cornmeal Strutties is uh you know just if they don't have cornmeal they'll have corn chops and uh i one of one of those two guys is going to have it a whole lot cheaper than buying it at h-e-b okay okay thank you i have one more last question Yes, sir. Uh, with, all this time on our, with all this time on our hands, our family's been kind of working on getting a nice garden growing and have lots of beans and and tomatoes and vegetables that are, I think they're asking for full sunlight. Uh, yes, sir. I just want to make sure, is it okay if they get sunlight all day long? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, you, you pretty much... Uh, pretty much, uh, peppers, beans, tomatoes. If they don't have full sun, they're not going to produce as well and they're not going to have as much flavor. Now, when July gets here, um, on the tomatoes, if you want to put a little bit of shade over them, you certainly can, but, uh, it's certainly not necessary. And this time of year, they want every hour of sunlight that they can get. Um, your peppers, your tomatoes are probably going to go all summer long, although large-fruited tomatoes will stop producing when the nights get real warm. Beans are going to be a shorter crop. Uh, bush beans are by far the most productive beans, and they have a productive period of about six or eight weeks, so they're probably going to be planting two or three crops of beans. And as we get into the hotter summer, uh, for instance, right now my bush beans are Tavera, T-A-V-E-R-A, and they're a great early season bean but they will not tolerate the heat be sure that they're planting something like contender or bush blue lake or uh tender green those are all good summertime green beans uh if they're if they're new to gardening uh, always you know tell them to call me or whatever and uh let me suggest varieties to you because some varieties are more heat tolerant than others and we want them to be as successful as possible with this garden Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Oh, what about radish and carrots? Wrong time of year. They'll be growing those in the in the winter months. Right now, they can be planting cucumbers and squash. And if you got lots of room, you can plant cantaloupe and watermelons. A month from now, when it really gets warm, we'll be planting okra. And all of those things can be planted from seed. From plants, uh, you can be planting tomatoes, eggplant, and peppers are the big three as far as setting out plants. But uh, uh, you, can, you can harvest a lot of fun stuff out of a garden, and I sure hope your family enjoys it. We're having a great time and appreciate you. Thank you very much, Bob. It's my pleasure always. Thank you, sir. Don, I don't have any recordings or any live, so let's run some more commercials, and we'll be right back to phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Oh, my gosh, the wind's coming up a little bit out there, but... What a beautiful Easter Sunday morning. It's just, uh, oh, just, just doesn't get much prettier than this. Sure, sure makes you glad. Sure reminds you of all the things we have to be thankful for. The Christians of the world, uh, very, very happy Easter to you. Our Jewish friends, uh, a few more days of Hanukkah is a very special season. However you celebrate, just, just be thankful. We have so much to be thankful for, even, uh, few challenges but uh but life is good uh we're going to talk to frank and george and donna and alan and frank is next good morning frank how's it going good. bob it is going extremely well how about you oh great man happy easter to you and to you as well 
And uh, I just, I know your buddy Mark over there, I heard him earlier. He always gives you a hummingbird report. But, uh, <laughs> yes, sir. We uh, didn't hear from, but I have one, and that's what reminded me to call you. Uh, okay. I have a pomegranate tree that's about three years old, and I had a group of hummingbirds of about eight to 12 this morning uh-huh. just hovering over this area with all the blooms on this thing. And I have wow. never seen that before in my entire life. And all those they just, big old orange flowers? Yeah, as fast as they showed up, they were gone. And I don't know if it's weather-related with those uh, birds, but who knows? You know, they're, they're were they quickly. Were they kind of zipping back and forth a little bit? Uh, yeah. Just kind yeah, of making a little... Yeah, what I would be willing to bet you, because that pomegranate has nice, thick foliage, and I would be willing to bet you there were two or three little girl hummingbirds down inside of that pomegranate. And when they're in there, your male hummingbirds, they'll they'll start out making little very, maybe three or four feet long, like little uh, U-shaped loop back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then once they think they've got their attention, they do these giant zooms. It's like a, like a U-shaped loop that goes, uh, 30 feet up in the air on each side. It's, <laughs> they're, they're showing imagine off kind of like, yeah. yeah. Imagine that, a uh, male, uh, trying to, <laughs> <laughs> and as, going on in society right now, there's, that dance still goes on. <laughs> and it does. And what happens if you watch them carefully, when that male gets to the very top of uh, his arc, a lot of times the female sneaks out the back side of the bush and goes somewhere else. And as soon as the females move on, the males move on. So I don't know that they're paying a whole lot of attention to those girl, those orange flowers, but I suspect you just, you just have the... Uh, little courtship ritual going on and it's just one of those things that makes it so much fun to sit out and study nature but it's uh it's a good day for that kind of activity i never thought about that maybe we could get that uh with nancy pelosi and we could get her to extract herself from i'm not going down that yeah We'll we'll let Trey handle that in the morning. I, that that's too that's too bad a subject to bring up on Easter, Frank. We we need to stick with happy stuff. So, uh, any anything I can help you with in the plant world? I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I've listened to you for decades, and you've always talked about paramagnetism, and I have right. never actually listened to what you have talked about, and I've had. Uh, you know, classes in college with uh, uh, different professors, and they never stress that. And uh, you always talk about green sand versus lava sand. Just give mm-hmm. us, and just give me and the group of people out here a one-on-one with paramagnetism, if you will. If you okay. know, I know it's going to take a little bit more time, maybe, but for you, it might be twenty seconds, but. Well, let's, let's maybe take 45 seconds. Paramagnetism is, it is an energy which is imparted by extreme heat to certain minerals. Um, it can be, 
you know, the uh, of course, any what we call igneous rock, uh, the main one out there is lava. And from the, you know, the heat of when the rock was molten, it has acquired a good deal of this energy that we call paramagnetism. And it's interesting, it, it decays, it breaks down over time, so that uh, if you were to take the core of a volcano, it's got a lot of old, old lava on the outside, a lot of more recent lava on the inside, and you get to the outside of it, uh, you have far less paramagnetism. Paramagnetism is just a very low-level energy field. It is measurable. This is not uh, black magic or anything. With the proper meter, you can measure the, layer, the level of paramagnetism. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, quite a few years ago, uh, New Earth was recycling wooden pallets, and they had a pile of pallets that was probably 40 feet high and 30 feet wide out off I-10 East. Uh, you've been around long enough, you might have noticed that. Well, somehow one night uh, they got a little fire started in that, and that was like the towering inferno. It burned so hot that the uh, fire department just stood back and watched it burn. There was no way they could even think about it, putting it out. So they just concentrated on, you know, keeping it from spreading. And lo and behold, the sandy soil that was underneath that pile, when they tested it, it was fairly highly paramagnetic as a result of the extreme heat uh, from that. So paramagnetism, what it seems to do for plants is it just it's an energy that plants can absorb and use when you put paramagnetic rock around the base of a plant it increases the sugar content of the plant and we call it the bricks b-r-i-x if you want another good term to look up and um and it makes it more cold hardy but uh, paramagnetism is a a measurable very weak energy field like i say that's created by heat uh, in many kinds of rock. So that that would be my summary of paramagnetism 101. And uh, so adding green sand or lava sand to any plant, whether it's a uh, just a blooming plant or a vegetable plant, will increase its volatility in that uh, field. Uh, lava sand only, because green sand... Yeah, green sand is not an igneous rock. Green sand uh, comes from the beds of ancient lakes and seas, and it is more of just a sandy material that's been coated with many, 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 many layers of algae. And as a result, it provides iron, it provides zinc. It's a very good product for certain uses, but it has no paramagnetism whatsoever. Um, Lava sand would be what you'd be looking for to increase your paramagnetism in the soil. And what what plants would uh, the lava sand uh, benefit most? Would it be any, the flowering plants or the any type? It uh, would be anything that you're wanting to increase the sugar level or reduce the potential for freezing. Uh, lava sand does a lot of good things besides the paramagnetism. Lava sand, and I'm not going to take the time this morning, maybe next week we can talk about what is called cation exchange capacity, which lava sand has a very high uh, CE value, and this means it helps with holding fertilizer until plants are ready to use it. It's sort of like a place where... Uh, it, it serves as a bank of things that plants need and holds them in place until the plants are ready to use them. So I cannot think of a single plant that would not 
benefit from having some lava sand in and around the soil. All right. Well, you've uh, educated a lot of us and me especially on that. And I want you to have a great rest of the week and take care of yourself and tell uh, Hannah and all your critters hello for us. <laughs> They're sitting right here beside me, and Dr. Kirby's working them over right now. So you have a good Easter. And uh, let's quickly, uh, I tell you what, let, let's get our last break out of the way, Don, so we'll know exactly how much time we have for uh, George and uh, Donna and Alan. Ten minutes left in the show. I want to be able to talk to George and Donna and Alan, so I'll ask you to get to your questions reasonably quickly, please. And George is up first. Good morning, George. Good morning, Bob. I've had a very satisfying pansy bed this winter. Yes, I'm sir. I'm looking to what I can replace it with. It's just as colorful and low-growing. Okay. My choice, but you can't plant them for another two weeks or so, That's is going to be... Is going to be one of the uh, low vincas. Vinca, also known as periwinkle, Madagascar periwinkle. Mm-hmm. Um, they, golly, there are so many varieties out there. There's a new one that's a very tiny, low growing with small flowers. They're about 20 different colors in the standard ones. Uh, they're trailing ones that can be put in hanging baskets. And where you have a sunny spot, to me, they give you more color than anything else you can plant for the summer months. But they don't go out till it gets really warm. We're going to have some pretty cool weather this week. And if you plant them too early, they are very susceptible to this issue, uh, this disease called Phytophthora wilt. So I'll tell you when it's time. My guess is that usually it's right around Mother's Day, which is about a month away now, a little bit less than a month away. And by that time, your pansies are going to be ready to come out, and your periwinkle should be just a phenomenal plant to replace them with. Do you all have a good uh, supply of those? When it is time, when it is time, we will have, and I know some people already have them out for sale, but I totally disagree with selling them or planting them this early. But uh, I visit our growers who keep them in these nice warm greenhouses, and it's all I can do to not buy them quite yet. But, uh, yeah, any good nursery will have a great supply of them. But uh, let's watch the weather. This is going to be chilly this week. It's been down in the 40s a few mornings. So uh, they'll keep the pansies going for a while. It certainly will, and keep us, too. It's your as comfortable walking weather. It is. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure, George. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Donna's up next. Good morning, Donna. Good morning. Happy Easter to you and all our gardening buddies. And then all our new gardening buddies, studies (laughs) that we're acquiring in this quarantine. (laughs) You know, and that's such a good thing. And gardening is just... Uh, again, I was five years old, and before I started to work with my grandfather on gardens and gardening and greenhouses, so it's it's just truly something that'll give you pleasure your whole life if you if you learn to do it right. Yeah, it's just like a sparkling of God in our yard. So, Amen. Anyway, Amen. I just wanted to add, uh, also comment. Um, I have a pittosporum that earlier this year it had dying limbs. Uh-huh. And I called you about it, and you didn't really know at that time because they're pretty prolific. And, right. Uh, so I took out the uh, coarse ground cornmeal and uh-huh. used that a couple of weeks, and uh, it is doing a lot better. And I fertilized Good. it more, and then now it's putting on a lot of new growth. But I had one of them that I had to completely cut down. It was probably about... Uh, 10 foot tall and uh, mm-hmm. it didn't make it because I didn't know what to do with it. So, But the other one did. Uh, 
you know, it, and all I did was cut out uh, the limbs that uh, were dead. And so what I was wondering is, I know that that works real well. I guess it must have been a fungus or something. It and, probably uh, so, yeah. Yeah, how often should I put that on there? You know, you're never going to overdo it. Um, as far as oak wilt prevention, we normally do it about twice a year. And so I probably would tell you to do the same. Now, do keep an eye out. It's not going to be a problem this time of year, but in the winter, I also see problems, uh, you know, from rodents chewing on the bark. And we probably talked about that as well. But as far as applying the the cornmeal on a preventive basis, uh, that's probably twice a year is going to be adequate. It's interesting, and there's a whole science to it. It's, acquired, it's called systemic acquired resistance or uh, systemic induced resistance, and it's now scientifically documented. You know, we talked about it for years, and everybody called us quacks. Well, now there's a lot of research, especially coming out of Europe, uh, that it does indeed kick in the plant's form of an immune system and, um, uh, yeah, I'd say every six months would be a good plan. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Well, it's always good to hear your voice and just the, the happiest of Easter seasons to you. I appreciate the call this morning. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We'll finish calls on the show today with Alan. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Uh, morning, sir. I have oak trees. I'm out constantly. Um, I guess just regular live oak trees. I'm trying to keep the pool clean I just about the time I thought they were through. <laughs> now you know, we had the little fuzzy stuff and now I got right. the new leaves came out and I thought, well I you know, good, pretty, you know, and now they're the wind is blowing those off. Anything well, to be concerned about or my lack of water it's check and see there is a troublesome little caterpillar uh, we call them leaf rollers and gall worms. And every few years, we get the, such an infestation of these little guys that they practically can cut every leaf off. The trees always seem to come out from it. But I would suspect that if you got up and looked carefully at the new growth, you're going to see some little quarter-inch-long caterpillars up there doing some damage on a mature tree. There's not much to do about it and not much to worry about. But here's what I would do next year and in coming years. If you put out this little parasitic wasp called the trichogramma wasp, always have to be careful not to confuse trichoderma fungus and trichogramma wasp, but the trichogramma wasp parasitizes the eggs of these caterpillars before they hatch out. And uh, that means that when you start seeing them and start getting the damage from them, it's too late to put them out. But what you do, you'll buy for less than $10 at a good nursery. You get a little, it's a piece of, oh, a heavy paper, almost looks like sandpaper. And what is on there, you have several thousand moth eggs each of which has a little developing wasp larva inside of it. You hang this out. I use a piece of fishing line because if you let fire ants get to it, they will eat those moth eggs. But you just hang it out on the shady side of the tree. The little wasps hatch out, and they are so effective, they'll get 99.9% of the eggs so that you'll never see these caterpillars on your tree. But like I say, you have to do it before the uh, caterpillars emerge. The time that we usually do it is late January or early February. I would suggest that in years to come as a way to totally prevent this. Okay, and would be pointless to do it now, huh? 
Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's not. You, you'd be, you know, you might get ten percent benefit, but it's not worth the time or the effort. And okay. our oak trees are in pretty good shape. We've had reasonably good rains, even though the soil's not wet real deep. But uh, I, I've seen them just totally defoliate trees, but I've never seen the oaks fail to come back out. So. <laughs> it's just the pool owner's nightmare. You know, when the leaves stop falling, it's time for the, or when the acorns stop falling, it's time for the leaves to start falling. And when the leaves stop falling, then it's time for those little catkins to start coming down. And uh, right. it's just kind of uh, <laughs> one of the many reasons I don't have a swimming pool. <laughs> so wish yeah. I could help you on that, but but uh, it's not well, anything I, to worry I about. Put the water hose. Uh, a couple of these trees are right next to the pool, kind of in a yeah. little patio area, and they're you know they're kind of only in a ten by ten area where there's grass and the trees. So I don't know how much water they actually get. So I put the water hose out there and turned it on and let it run. So yeah, thought maybe uh, there's a water issue. No, sir, you not to worry about that, but uh, not anything that's going to cause your trees long-term problems, so go back to worrying about COVID-19 or something else for a while. <laughs> I'm tired of that one. Right. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Good to talk to you, and uh, once again, a very happy Easter season to you. Thanks, Alan. Uh, goodbye.